Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan on News Talk. We had a lot of reaction to the programme yesterday because Gail, who's a listener, just got in contact with us um, about her situation. She missed her own mother's funeral because she couldn't get respite care for her 21-year-old son who has profound needs. And because of the lack of help, really, the lack of services, she missed her her own mum's funeral. Take a listen. I had said that she, my mum is dying and I'm concerned that I need to spend some time with her each week. Um, you know, no, nothing was made. And then when she passed, I immediately reached out because Luca was with the service provider, um, a long-standing service provider funded by the HSC, and the response was um, negative, no. They said that the staff couldn't stay on for the extra day and that they themselves weren't available. Gail, I can't even begin to imagine what you must have been I'm going still, through. I'm very numb. Um, I've become numb over the last year because of the unfair treatment of my son and just the pure inhumane treatment. I am numb. I think I'm in shock. I think I'm still, I'm grieving my mum. Of course you are, yeah. Different days and different hours of the day. I feel different. So I'm, I think I'm trying to process everything, but it's really made me feel that like there's very few good people left in the world because I think that's quite inhumane. And you can listen back if you want to, to Gail's story in full. It's on um, on the News Talk app. You can subscribe there to Lunchtime Live. But there was something about Gail's story that really affected people. Um, it's not the first time we've talked to carers about their situation and their circumstances on the show. But there was something about Gail's story yesterday. Um, and I suppose the reality of all this and the fact that because there weren't or wasn't enough services available, there was just nobody to step in to relieve her for a couple of hours to bury her mum. And I think that really hits people. Because for everybody else that's a carer in the country, I'm sure that's their worst nightmare as well, that they too would find themselves in in a similar position to that if they don't get the help that they need and that they rightly deserve. And I came in this morning and we would a number of emails from people who'd got in touch and, and wanted to share their own experience with us. And I wanted to create some time today to do that. Lunchtime live at newstalk.com is the email if you want to get in touch. But Jerry, you were listening to Gail's story yesterday and you care for your own two sons as well with additional needs. What, like, What's your situation? Uh, hi, Andrea. Um, so I'm, I'm a bit nervous, so apologies. No, you're okay. Uh, Take your time. I'm a bit uh, stuttery. But um, yeah, we, we have, uh, myself and my husband have two boys, um, 23 and 19 years old, and they have a very rare genetic uh, condition. And um, my older lad uh, attends the National Learning Network, um, and uh, he's, he's, you know, he's ploughing his own field. He's doing okay. And uh, my younger son, 19, is unfortunately now in um, an emergency respite facility. Um, I think, you know, just listening to what Gail was saying, you know, like we didn't wake up in the morning and suddenly decide that we don't want to do this anymore. You know, we've been fighting this for the last 15 years, looking for support. We always wanted to mind and continue to look after Jack in in his own home because that's where he needed to be. But we knew that year on, in, he was getting more and more um, his behaviour was very self-injurious, he was harming himself and um, and his behaviour was extremely challenging 
and we flagged this about a decade ago, 10 years. So we we reached the point in August when he, he did significant damage to himself that we just we, we just did the unthinkable and we, um, in the eyes of the state, we abandoned our son. Why do you why do you say in the eyes of the state, Jerry, you you abandoned in your son? In the eyes of the state, yeah, in the eyes of the state, if you don't collect your child from from a facility like like a respite facility or a hospital or anything like that, in the eyes of the state, you essentially abandon your son, your child, and so like we we have never ever, ever in our wildest dreams imagined that we would be pushed to this point that we wouldn't see our son for 30 days when he was a baby. He was in hospital for six weeks and we never left his side 24 hours a day. My husband did the nights, I did the days. He was never on his own. And for 30 days now we haven't seen our child. I'm sitting in his bedroom right now, sitting on his bed and I haven't seen him in 30 days. And it's breaking our heart. So he's he's in a full time emergency respite, Jer. He's yeah. We can't take him home. We we simply cannot take him home. We cannot take him home because it's, it, things had escalated so badly over the last few years that we were afraid, and we did flag this. We were afraid that he would die right in front of our eyes, and any night he would have a behaviour, a challenging behaviour. The next morning we would stand outside his door for for about five seconds before we'd open the door to greet him in the morning, afraid that we would find him dead in his bed. Oh, chair. Yeah. yeah. And we have the older boy. The older boy has learned through through previous experience that he spends pretty much every weekend locked in his bedroom so he doesn't have to witness his mummy or his daddy trying to restrain his, his baby brother. But he's six foot two and he's 17 stone. He's enormous. He's just a very, very, very big lad with the strength of about 10 people. And it's just reached. I think like we had a, um, a HSE case conference recently and my husband just looked at the, the caseworker straight in the face and said, I can't go back to the way things were and I won't go back to the way things were or I will take my own life. That's what my my husband said to the person in front of him. He said, I will take my own life rather than go back to the way things were. And nobody's listening. Nobody's, nobody's, if somebody stood in front of me, Andrea, and said, I will take my own life, I would do everything in my power to make sure that that wouldn't happen. I would do everything to stop a person reaching that point. But we've had 15 years of this. And at the time when when both of your sons, I know they're the two boys, are are, are twenty three. You mentioned, isn't it, and and, and nineteen now? But nineteen, yeah. yeah. When they were that little bit younger, um, and I know you said things have kind of progressed now, and the behaviour is more extreme. But when they were that little bit younger, Jair, was it more manageable, or was it that you had more help from services and and providers and that at the time? definitely more manageable you know I first flagged the older chap doesn't have those behaviours so I want to you know make sure that he he isn't you know sort of the same as his younger brother his younger brother is the chap with the challenging behaviour so I keep a diary I've always kept a diary it's not a very exciting diary but I've always kept a diary mm-hmm. and uh, Jack had his very first meltdown when he was four he's 19 now 
So this has been 15 years of escalation behaviour. So we have managed to the point where we just couldn't manage any longer. And it was just a case of like, we were trying to save his life. It wasn't a case of us just waking up one morning and saying, you know what, really fancy just, you know, going on a cruise and having a terrific time. You know, we don't have a terrific time. We've been basically prisoners in our own house for the last while. Nobody comes to the house. Nobody can come to the house because my son just doesn't react well to it. So, like, and then my older son has been locked in his bedroom every weekend. So he doesn't have to witness that. Because we all just have, we, we all have PTSD in this house. We're all traumatised. We're just, all we get is flashes. You know, you close your eyes and all you get is flashes of your son continually bashing his head against a wall. At Christmas time, I called the emergency services and the, the police arrived who were really excellent. And I was wiping blood off the walls. And they looked at me and thought I was having a stroke because one side of my head, one side of my face had dropped from sheer terror, total terror. It's absolutely traumatising, Ger. Do you get any help? Yeah, there's no other. Yes, yes, we do. So uh, where Gail doesn't, we do. And um, so, like, you know, it, it, we're, and I'll use this in inverted commas, we're one of the lucky ones, you know, we do get respite. And I have to say again, I have the most wonderful family, friends. Um, he attends a day service called CARE um, in, in Kildare. The respite has been fantastic. The only thing they care about in the respite is Jack and his well-being. But when, I suppose, when it comes down to it, we've always been told, and certainly recently we've been told, there's no money, there's no resources, there's no money. And then the Minister for Disabilities on foot of this report that came out this week, you know, the Nowhere to Turn mm. report that came out. And Robert said explicitly that this isn't a resources issue. There is money. But all we've been told is that there is no money. There's no money for, for, for extra support. None. And all we want to do is have a situation where we can care for our son in some way in his own home, but also have the respite as well because that's the only way to do it and you know it's 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 gas because like he's actually in a full-time facility now which is costing more money you know rather than what we were looking for we, we were looking for less we were looking for less than that and now we're in a situation where we're in a stalemate now and my son has started to say things like go home go home and he will eventually want to come home. Of course he will. This is his home. It must be it must be very lonely, Jer, is it? Oh, it's desperate. It's desperate. I, I I pretty much I think I cried for the first the first three weeks of him being gone because I felt well, A that I had let him down. And Not B, at all, my God. Yeah, but we did. That's how it felt. We felt we had let our son down. My heart was hurting with pain. Because he's a baby, you know, he's 19, but he's really only about five or six. You know, he's, he's nobody would walk away from their child, at the, you know, a five or six year old like that. The pain is unbelievable. I'm in his bedroom now. I haven't changed one thing. His bed is made. 
you know, it's ready for him to come home, but we can't bring him home. Not unless we have help. Not unless you have help. That's the whole point of this, yeah. isn't it? It seems that yeah. everybody nearly seems to fall through the crack summer in this whole in this whole yeah. uh, system, really. Um, Jill is with us too, Jer. Jill, you were listening to Jer and you, you were listening to Gail's story yesterday and I, I'm sure they both resonate with you as well. Absolutely. And Jer's story is co- more common than you'd realise. Um, I hear it all the time. I'm a mum of a son with special needs, very special. Uh, he has severe autism. He's nonverbal. He's 15. And... I'm very lucky in so far as he's he's nothing like like he's easy he's easy going do you know what I mean very laid back um and but I I think from being in the 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 autism club um this definitely needs to be highlighted it's underground it's hidden um and it needs to be exposed, Andrea. It, it really, really does. It's not right. Do you get much help or assistance, Jill? Um, I, at the moment, he's in a special needs school. So he's gone for till half past three in the afternoon. I have a, a respite family that he goes to for, say, two sleeps, maybe every five or six weeks. Every five or six weeks. For how many, yeah. for how many days, sorry? Um, two nights. Two, two nights, nights every five or six weeks. And then, yeah. you know, in, in between that, do you get any assistance at home, Jill? No. No, I don't. Um, but, I, well, except his, my own. Um, uh, he's... You know, I'm just going to try and reconnect with you, Jill, if you, if you don't mind. Just bear with us there for a moment. Cliff is on the line too. Cliff, you've been listening to Gail and, and Jill and Jer there this afternoon. What's your situation? Um, that's right. Um, it's just, it, it's a hard situation. Like, I wouldn't be in a situation kind of like them. My daughter's at home. She's okay towards the stage that she has EDS, um, curvature of the spine and cataracts as well, you know, that she needs an operation on. Um, but the EDS is a big thing because it's um, dislocations of the joints and, and tendons and ligaments and stuff like that, you know. Um, I also work in the section of um, care and as well, so I do. So I, I okay. see um, both sides of it and I see the way, um, I suppose, families are treated and stuff, you know. Um, there's stage two where I've been waiting 10 months to get cares allowance uh, as I only work 37 hours over a fortnight uh, where I work, you know. Carer's allowance, sorry, is the parent for your own child or from work? Yeah, care for your own, care for your own okay. child. So it is, you know. So um, so that, so because I only work 37 hours, 18 and a half a week. But I don't always work 18 and a half because I had something like nearly 300 holidays worked up over a certain length of time and I used them the whole way through most of this year. So I think I have something like 20 hours holidays left um, out of that, you know, so uh, because I couldn't work with with my daughter and stuff over the summer and all that kind of stuff being around. Um, but look, you're hitting your head off a brick wall all the time. Um, every time you they look for more documentation, it takes more than 12 weeks for them to look at it again. Um, and it, it's just, look, it's a big word, uh, discrimination, but I think it is a discrimination against carers and people uh, and, their, and their loved ones. 
they just don't want to listen to you. They don't want to talk to you. Actually, you can't talk to them because they tell you that um, you can only send them uh, an email and they won't answer you back. Um, so it's just, it's a constant knocking your head against the wall trying to get um, um, answers off them, you know. So, and you just don't. And I, look, my heart goes out to Gail and Jer and all that there. Um, I, I understand what they're going through because I suppose I work in um, uh, that situation as well in high support. And I see um, getting the big belts off the lads and, you know, because you, you're in that, you, you get you get hit all the time, you get kicked, you get... You know, so I, I, I see it all. Um, and to be honest, management don't really care about you. They just leave you until you get on with it. You know, like there's no protection for staff. And that this is where it lies that you don't have enough staff to cover um, respite. Um, because people have just got so sick of um, being thrown around and being messed with and being whatever. Like So they just left the whole organisation because it's not paying enough for you to take um, the rubbish you're taking from management and stuff. You know that kind of like Jer, one of the points that um, that Gail made yesterday, and I, I can see, you know, I can see it from other stories coming in as well on email and text today. And Gail mentioned it. Like, what happens um, as you get older and your husband get o- gets older? And like, that's of course inevitably going to happen. But I know that was Gail's concern and the fact she she couldn't leave yesterday to to go and bury her mum two weeks ago. But like, what do you do in situations like that when? you know, an emergency or an extreme emergency like that crops up that you can't, you can't pre-plan for? Yeah, well, as I said, I have, uh, we have terrific support from family and friends and, um, you know, the respite facility and our home support as well. And so we're very, very lucky, but we're getting older. We're both in our mid-50s and we're dealing with an extremely strong young man. And my husband is, is a very strong person, but even if he tries to restrain my boy, um, it would it would take the strength of ten men to restrain my son. He's he's there's a strength that comes from I don't know superhuman strength. Is that is that a concern for you as well, Jill? Yes, in so far as he's taller than me, he's stronger. Um, he's very laid back, Andrea. But can I just tell a fast story there? Um, I have a friend of mine who's in adult services, dealing with adults with disabilities. He got a new resident at 53 years of age. And I said, where was this resident for the last 53 years? And he said, oh, his dad at 92 had to go into a nursing home because he couldn't manage him anymore. And that floored me, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And I said, is this a mirror for my future? Is this my future? So it's you, you think for, you're supposed to live in the moment, but you can't live you in the can't. moment. Sure, how can you? Yeah. No. Is that my future? Am I going to have to mind him and clean him and wash him and feed him until I'm 92 when I'm not able to do it anymore? Do you feel like there's anybody care, caring for you, Jill? Um, for you, I in, mean. like Not really, not in government or anything like that. No, no. No, my job is phenomenal. They, um, I guess um, I'm able to job share. Now, when he's finished school, am I going to have to give up my job and be a full-time carer? Because Gail wasn't lying about the isolation yesterday. No, All of carrier, carers are hidden away indoors with our children. Well, she, say, uh, she said, you, 
you can't often go out and protest, you know, and and picket and and shout and talk about it because she, you know, you're you're at home caring for your loved one and and you don't even have the flexibility to to do that. There's no, you don't. There's a lot of people getting in touch about this. Who's responsible for caring for our carers? I want to try and find out who's in charge of this. Jill and Jer and um, also Cliff as well. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Look, it's lunchtime live at newstalk.com. That's the email address. Lunchtime live with Andrea Gilligan. Weekdays at midday on News Talk. 1800 453 106. That's the number if you want to get in touch. You can drop me an email either lunchtime live at newstalk.com. A lot of people have been doing that since we spoke to Gail on the show yesterday. And if you just, if you're just joining us, I was chatting to Jer and Jill and Cliff a few moments ago about their own circumstances, their carers for their own children, their loved ones. Um, and they're concerned about the fact that they get very little help. And when we spoke to Gail on the show yesterday, I think what really struck people about her situation was the fact that she's minding her 21-year-old son who has profound needs and couldn't get anybody to relieve her, to give her respite services to allow her to attend her own mother's funeral. And there's something... There's something really shocking about that that I think has really struck a nerve with a lot of people. So we're asking who's actually responsible for the carers? Because off the back of Gail's story yesterday, we got in touch with the HSE and the reply we got from the HSE was to say that this wasn't part of their brief. It was really an issue for community healthcare. So then we got in touch with community healthcare and they forwarded our question on to the disability services and we're waiting for a reply there. So then we contacted the health minister. We didn't get any reply. Then we got on to the minister for older people, Mary Butler. She's the junior health minister for older people. Didn't get a response. So then we got in touch with Anne Rabbit because she's the minister for disabilities. Now, her office did reply um, and they explained that carers really fall under an umbrella of different departments. So they're under health and social protection and disabilities. And they said they'd need more information to be able to comment on Gail's case. And that's fair enough. And, and we've provided that. And if we get more information on that, we'll certainly, certainly bring that to you. But there really seems to be no point of contact. Like there's no one liaison department, certainly that I can find in my last 24 hours um, of dealing with this. There's no one department you can just get in touch with. There really seems to be nobody who can answer for Gail. So was it any wonder carers feel like they're falling through the cra- through the cracks? Because let's be honest, they are falling through the cracks. And Fine Gael Senator Mary uh, Siri Kearney is with me now on the show today. Mary... Who is actually responsible for the carers? Well, the the I suppose the difficulty where with carers is that they are caring for someone with a disability. That individual comes under the portion of the department of, of the disability minister, who is a minister of state, um, in the department of children, disability integration, and youth affairs, uh, and and equality, uh, and and so. One of the things that I have complained every time we, you know, Minister Rabbit is very responsive. She's very good, to be fair to you. She's, I, I think, very good and has her heart and her determination in absolutely the right place and is great to work with. But in a way, we need disabilities is, is at such a serious level in state. I believe it needs a full cabinet position, to be perfectly honest, because one of the problems or one of the fears that occurred when disability moved from the Department of Health 
over to the Department of Children fully earlier this year was how do you command authority in the HSC when the HSC is under the Department of Health? And we received loads of reassurances that that will be fine, that that will be the case. But you you get the run around. We as as politicians well, get the same. Absolutely, absolutely, Andrea. And it isn't departments since we we got in touch. Know. And and like from certainly my assessment of this, and you could say, what do I know beyond chatting to people about this who got in touch that are the people living this day to day? Is that there really seems to be no one person they can talk to. And when they talk, when carers talk about feeling alone and being lonely, sure. It's no wonder they feel like that. There doesn't seem to be anyone responsible for them. And I I think, and I mean, first of all, yesterday listening to Gail was, I mean, it was just appalling. I I am sure anyone listening to it was incredibly moved and also very angry. And my response to it was to be very angry because I would like to say to you that Gail is an isolated case. She's not. She's not. In the last week alone, I've had, and, and on a regular basis, I have people on the phone to me who are considering their own lives and whether them being there and providing the care to the extent that they do actually inhibits their loved one from getting what they should be getting from the state. But why what do they we should accept be. That? Well, well, we we don't, and and I'm but part we of that. I work, are though, because if yeah, it's happening I, well, this it's, frequently as you say it is, yeah. And I I think for a long time, family carers, they won't go on strike, they won't abandon their loved one, and so it's easier to to perhaps make decisions in different directions. And that isn't to say that huge progress hasn't been made. You know, allowing or ensuring that anyone who's a full-time family carer has access to pensions, that, you know, that they're included in all that. So progress is made. And I have a, a big, long document here mm. of all of the progress and the millions and millions that is spent in the area of carers. But I'm not going to insult anybody by, by trotting that out. Uh, Family Carers Ireland, I, I, as an as an organisation, I came in touch with them under the at the time of the pre-legislative scrutiny for the Assisted Decision Making Capacity Act uh, that came into being earlier this year, and to hear their stories, which are very similar to Gail's, you know, people not able to make an appointment to go to a hospital or to be able to take a cancellation because there is no respite, there is no emergency care. So how do we improve that? Because it's the one thing that all of the callers and, and Cliff and Jer and, and, um, and Jill even made here today on the programme is that there's they've nobody, I mean, mm-hmm. beyond the generosity of family and close friends, and in Gail's case, that's something she didn't have on the day she needed it, but there's nobody to call on. In in, in an emergency. So one of the commitments in the programme for government is a a carer guarantee, which is to have services in the local community and supports training, you know, all all of those those calls uh, in the in the in the um, in their local community and accessible to people. And that it isn't a postcode lottery, depending on where you live in the country, you either get the services you don't. But to have that consistency across the country, a, a five million was committed to that. 1.9 million of it has been delivered. A, a lot of it is recruitment of having having the personnel. So it's it's important in the middle of all of this that we also respect the, the, the people that work in the HSE are people who are committed and devoted and we want we want them to be supported by having additional staff to be able to roll out the service that they want to. So is it just a case of we, we don't have enough personnel and, and that's you know, one of feet the, staff on the ground yeah, that's to actually the offer the respite care that we yeah. have in, in mm-hmm. the commitment and government yeah. want to do? 
and there's lo- and like the thing about it is like you know politically cross party every politician you know gets gets worked up and I don't in any way question their their um you know, motivation for doing that about carers because there are carers in every one of of, uh, of their constituencies, and obviously it is an issue for a lot of politicians. But I'm just somewhat surprised that there's really been such a lack of progress. I I think I think there is there is progress. There's no doubt about that. But the the progress is at at a at a, a level of changing things like pensions, increasing the funding. That's no use to Gail, who needs respite today needs to attend a hospital appointment or a doctor tomorrow that that's no use to them they and that recruitment takes time and i i'm not by any means being an apologist for it because it's not okay and the i'm part of a cross party uh, group that and we have a consensus in supporting the the calls from family carers ireland because everything they're asking for is logical reasonable if anything, it's too reasonable because it it's, comes from their heart and motivation. They want preventative action so that there's early intervention. There is moves to that earlier this year. You know, I'm part of a policy group within Fine Gael and we met with, with Simon Harris to say we need a call out to increase training, to incre- to make sure that we're maximising the capacity of the people that are, are training. I met with Inchicore College. They were ready to increase the numbers to ensure that there are people who are delivering speech and language that we, you know, occupational therapists, that we have technicians, technician level as well as the, the full, the, we look at apprenticeships. That so we look is at it just that we're not paying level of support. staff enough to attract people into the caring profession? Is that, that was something that Cliff mentioned, you know, a little earlier. I, I, I think our, our rates of pay are, are, there are people in the profession, I'm very, very pleased to be in the profession, you know, and, and work, but, but the pressure they're under, there is a certain level of attrition because they're under pressure because they're short staffed. And, and it's, it's not unique to us, it's not unique to, to Ireland, but it, we, we need to certainly make sure that it is an attractive, that working in the HSE is, is an attractive place to work and that we are cherishing the people that are in there. So I, I certainly agree with that. We, but we also need to, um, look at where, where families get the, the services themselves, they procure the services themselves, that there is a refund for that, that they're, that they're given the financial support back to that. That was one of the commitments that Minister Rabbit made earlier this year, that by the end of August, if she hadn't seen changes in the delivery of support services, that she was going to, to make an intervention on that. So I, I would call for a delivery on that promise. And also that there's, there's no reason why we wouldn't have a, a, a treatment purchase scheme in the same way, if we can do it for cataracts, why can't we do it for disability supports and make sure that we, we do that? So is that something that you're, you're lobbying decision. on at the moment? That is something that I've been lobbying on uh, very strongly to say, why why, why don't we do that? Why, and, why aren't and we? And what has been the response with that or to that? Well, er, everything goes into a pot and we'll hear on the other side of budget. Um, I, I've certainly been well received in it um, because it's not a lack of political will. It's not a lack no, of there's money. there's always loads of... Because there's certainly... The, the 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 budget. If we take the Department of Children, the disability minister's budget is the largest part of that, and absolutely far outshadows anything else in that department. So it's not the lack of a commitment of money. It is about delivery. It is about having accountability, a focus on person centred focus. There's a That's need as well, my, though, to on just I think a very you know humane level to yes. just care 
for the carers as well because yes. every single one of the people who've got in touch have talked about how lonely they feel yep. how they're exhausted mentally physically emotionally and how they're concerned that they will there will fairly soon become a time for a lot of them that they will not be able to continue to look after their own kids in their home Absolutely. and that's a that's a very genuine a very real concern like I, I have sat with people Andrea who've considered taking their own lives I had a lady here today who's the same in the show yeah, and, I, and I'm sorry I missed part of that today. But, um, you know, so so a lot part of my advocacy over the last three years while I've been in, in the Shannon has been to say our means testing. You know, we, we know that disability is an additional cost. We need to be matching that in the budget. We need to be increasing. They're the sort of things that I'm a champion to say. We, we've got to okay. increase that. I have a, s- a statement in just in relation actually to Gail's situation for people that have been following this. And if you missed it, um, it's on the News Talk app. You can you can listen back to it. So it's from the HSE Dublin South Kildare West Wicklow. Um, yeah, they want to acknowledge the difficult circumstances, challenges, circumstances and challenges faced by people with disabilities and their carers. And we'd also like to extend the sympathy, our sympathies as well to yesterday's caller and her family and the passing of their loved one. Disability services provide respite services to service users as part of the range of supports that are available. Um, Disability services continue to work with providers to increase and maximise the availability of respite to all users, etc. When emergency situations arise for people and their families, disability services will always work with them um, and their providers to access respite for the duration of the emergency period. Unfortunately, there are times when this is not possible due to a number of reasons. Staff at short notice, the need for providers to conduct assessments prior to being in a position to offer a respite um, in circumstances where the user is not known to the service provider already. Is that satisfactory? No. I, I, it's, it's rational and it explains the situation. But I, for, for many years, I worked in governance in childcare in the whole, and, and was an advisor to the childcare committees, for instance. We had what was, and a colleague that works with me now, uh, ran childcare service. We had um, a system of that there was a bank of staff that you could call in because you recognise that people got sick. People had deaths in their family. They had, they had situations that needed a staffing response to it. So what needs to happen is that there is a panel there that are ready to be responsive because Family emergencies crop up all of the time. People fall. Their issues arise all of the time. It's hard to believe there isn't one, isn't there? It is. I mean, well, clearly there is one of sorts. But actually, even if that means that those people sit and they're doing nothing because the the emergency isn't needed on a particular rare day, I would imagine. So enhance the panel. Enhance the panel. Grow the number of people that can do this. There's no reason why that wouldn't be the case. But also... For the likes of Family Carers Ireland, it, it, last year they were given six, mm. you know, six hundred thousand. They have no, they, and I would expect that that's going to be redone again in the budget this year. But actually, they need to know that okay. for three years. Well, uh, they need to be able to make plans. Certainly, you know, I think that emergency ahead. panel is, is is something that many of the families uh, would definitely have no doubt support. Finnegale Senator uh, Mary Sirney Carney, thanks a million for joining us, Mary, um, in, on the programme today. Lunchtime live at Newstalk.com, though, that is the email address if you want to get in touch. Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan. Weekdays at midday on News Talk.